So I'd hoped that my cousin would have been here today joining us for worship because he would have been able to corroborate what I'm about to say about uh, my, our grandpa, George. As long as I knew him, George was larger than life. He'd grown up in rural North Dakota during the Depression, suffering through the Dust Bowl. And out the outbreak of World War II, he moved with his family to Wadena, Minnesota, into our old farmstead, which still stands today, to which family uh, come up during the summer. He served in the U.S. Army during the war and during an employment to Europe, which included the liberation of the Nordhausen concentration camp. He earned two degrees from Utah State University. He married our grandmother, Rosella, and moved to Columbia, Missouri, where he worked for the Missouri Department of Conservation for 39 years as a fisheries biologist. He had two sons and six grandchildren whom he loved intensely. But intense was the right word for George, as Sarah can attest. He wasn't a perfect man. His intensity had a dark side. He could lose his temper, making Grandma cry sometimes. And also, we might hear through the grapevine that Grandpa had been complaining about us to another member of the family for some reason or another. I know this because he sometimes complained to me about other family members. Yet toward the end of his life, he reflected on his mortality, especially after Grandma died. He also endured his own health problems, a couple kinds of cancer, a stent, mobility issues stemming from two accidents, one a skiing accident and the other a car accident some 40 years before, and macular degeneration, ultimately robbing him of his eyesight. George began to speak more openly of what he'd experienced during the war, showing copies of letters he had sent his parents from Europe. He'd also put names on things throughout the house so that the right people would take them when he died. And he also began quoting Ecclesiastes in his letters. One of his letters quoted 12.1, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. In another letter, he expressed a sentiment that could have come directly from Ecclesiastes. I feel pretty well, barring a few of the multitudinous maladies that indicate what some idiots call the golden years. <laughs> they should be called the lead years. So when I reread Ecclesiastes in preparation for the sermon this week, I thought of Grandpa George. Ecclesiastes keeps it real. There's no shying away from hard reality. There's no sugarcoating of the truth. In verse 2, the teacher expressed the problem of human existence in two Hebrew words, hevel, hevelim, which our translation renders perfectly pointless. The words are more concrete than that. They refer to a thin smoke or vapor that disappears as soon as it appears. For the teacher of Ecclesiastes, Everything we are and everything we do is little more than a puff of smoke that begins to dissipate as soon as it appears. The teacher expresses skepticism about the value of hard work over laziness. We heard that, seeing that the fruits of one's labors must be left behind for someone else who didn't work for them. 
He even calls into question the value of wisdom over foolishness, observing that in the end, death awaits both the wise and the foolish. And on top of that, the teacher expresses no hope in a resurrection or a life to come. He doesn't even believe that one's earthly legacy can long endure, writing, the people of long ago are not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. All in all, Ecclesiastes is a dark, sober, hyper-realistic book, especially in comparison with the optimistic Proverbs. However, the teacher is neither a nihilist nor an atheist. He believes in God and in God's justice. He believes that God's order, we might say wisdom, building on the first two sermons in our series here on wisdom literature, undergirds the, the cosmos, undergirds everything that is. After all, in those famous words, and I know the song is going through your head right now, there is a time for every matter under heaven. He also believes that though human beings and their works pass away, God and God's works do not. In every age, the question of purpose, the question of meaning recurs. In the 16th century, Luther and the Reformers asked, how can I live a justified life before God? In a post-Christendom world where belief in God is, is not assured and where a human being seems to be reduced to a mere marker of economic value, the question becomes something like this. Just how can I live a justified life? How can I live a purposeful life? Does my life matter? Is there any point to my existence? In this world that seems to be so random and so absurd, What's the point of living? I don't know if you've seen the first images of the James Webb Space Telescope, but one of the images is now up on the wall. The image is of a galaxy cluster as it appeared 4.6 billion years ago. It shows the universe the size of a grain of sand held at arm's length. That's how big it is, it's tiny. From our perspective, except for the very bright foreground star, each of those points of light is a galaxy with billions and billions of stars each. In this cosmic sense, we are truly insignificant. We're a mass of carbon that disappears soon after it appears. And there will indeed be a time when no matter who we are or what we've accomplished, we'll be forgotten. Even the great people of history will meet this faith. Yet this insignificance is a great gift from God, and it is an opportunity. In our companion gospel from Luke, Jesus lays out the conditions for discipleship. If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. We might think of the cross as a mere burden to bear or a handicap in life, but Jesus is thinking more profoundly than that. There's a reason that archaeologists have only discovered one fragment of bone from all of the, all of the victims that Rome crucified 
all of the thousands of people hung on crosses. Often, there was nothing left to bury. The sentence of crucifixion was not just death. It was humiliating, agonizing. It was the extinction that ensured that there would be nothing left of the victim. The message was clear. This is the fate that awaits anyone who dares challenge the state. The victim's insignificance and puniness against the might of Rome is clear. So what Jesus is telling the crowd to do is to pick up their own extinction. Pick up their own forgottenness, their own insignificance, their own meaninglessness, and follow him. And in following him, they would find life. A life worth more than anything Rome could offer. And not just a life now, or not just a life in the world to come, but a life that begins now. A life that understands the path to meaning, that the path to meaning goes through meaninglessness. The path to significance goes through insignificance, and the path to life goes through death. There's no skirting the cross. There's no avoiding the cross for the disciple of Jesus. There's no going around or under the disciple can only go through. Jesus is trustworthy when he tells us this, that this is the path, because he took it himself. Jesus was equal with God, but he became human, one of us. And he took on everything that comes with it. He took on our mortality. He went to the cross to redeem us, motes of dust and puffs of breath that we are. And though the powers of this world sought to grind Jesus into dust to ensure that he and his gospel would never be remembered, he conquered them all by being raised from the dead. On that Sunday morning, Jesus rose, and nothing is the same. All the human striving for immortality, for remembrance, for greatness, all of that doesn't really matter now. Because Jesus, God with us, doesn't strive for human greatness, for immortality, through power. Jesus shows his lordship, the path to life, by going to the cross for us. And we're freed to follow. Freed from our own pretensions and immortality projects. Freed from our anxieties and fears about our own significance. Freed to carry our own insignificance, trusting that in following Jesus, we live whole shalom lives. God, give us the faith, the strength, and the will to pick up the gift of our insignificance, of our temporary nature, and follow.